Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. It will be certainly, I think, my recommendation, my feeling that we should make referrals, uh, but we will get to a decision as a committee and we will all abide by that decision and I will join our committee members uh, if they feel differently. The January 6th hearings return this week and there are new revelations tonight about who was talking and texting to whom before and during that attack on the Capitol. Plus, a former member of the Oath Keepers joins me tonight as its leader, Stuart Rhodes, gets ready to stand trial. Facing allegations, he helped to plot the effort to steal, to end the transfer of power through violence. Plus, young Iranians are risking everything to demand an end to ultra-conservative religious government oppression and violence against women. And the outrage is only growing. But we begin tonight with the return of the House January 6th committee. We are now less than 48 hours from the committee's next public hearing on Wednesday. Committee members remain mostly tight-lipped about what evidence will be presented, but Congressman Adam Schiff indicated it would be sweeping. Still unclear is whether the committee will bring up a significant allegation from its former technical advisor, Denver Riggleman, who told 60 Minutes that a call was placed by the White House switchboard to a cell phone linked to someone in the mob that day. You get a real aha moment when you see that the White House switchboard had connected to a rioter's phone while it's happening. That's a big, pretty big aha moment. You get an aha. Wait a minute. Someone in the White House was calling one of the rioters while the riot was going on? On January 6th. Absolutely. And you know who both ends of that call? I only know one end of that call. I don't know the White House end, which I believe is more important. Those comments seem to expose tensions between the committee and Riggleman, a former Republican congressman who, like Mark Meadows, was a member of the so-called Freedom Caucus. Committee member Jamie Raskin confirmed that the committee is aware of the call. Can't say anything specific about that particular call, but we are aware of it. Uh, and we're aware of lots of contacts between uh, people in the White House and different people that were involved, obviously, in the, the coup attempt and the insurrection. A statement from a committee spokesperson seemed to downplay Riggleman's claim, saying in his role on the select committee staff, Mr. Riggleman had limited knowledge of the committee's investigation. He departed from the staff in April prior to our hearings and much of our most important investigative work. According to the CNN, the call in question was made at 4.34 p.m., shortly after the former president released a video telling the mob to go home and lasted just nine seconds. Still, in his interview, Riggleman, who is releasing a book on his work with the committee, said that former chief of staff Mark Meadows' text messages provide a roadmap of the evolution of the January 6th plot. In fact, according to CNN, newly obtained texts show that one of Meadows' communications was with election denier Phil Waldron about a plot to seize voting machines in the key states of Arizona and Georgia. Meanwhile, Riggleman's book also includes details about Trump allies, including former advisor Roger Stone. He noted that investigators identified Stone had two calls with former Oath Keepers, Oath Keepers Chief Stuart Rhodes nine days after the attack. 
and calls before and after the six with Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio. Well, Tarrio and Rhodes are charged with seditious conspiracy for their involvement. In the meantime, we're getting some indications of what the committee does plan to present on Wednesday. The Washington Post reports the committee intends to show footage of Stone recorded by Danish filmmakers in the weeks leading up to the 6th. And joining me now is Charles Coleman, Jr., civil rights attorney, former prosecutor and MSNBC legal, legal analyst, Peter Strzok, former FBI counterintelligence agent, and Tim Miller, writer at large for The Bulwark and an MSNBC political analyst. Peter, I want to go to you because the committee seems to be kind of trying to downplay what Denver Riggleman had to say. And yes, he's not on the committee staff right now. Yes, he's writing a book. We put all those caveats in place. But I watched that entire scene, uh, the entire 60 Minutes interview, and, and I have to say, I can't think of an innocent reason anyone in the White House would pick up the phone, even for nine seconds, and call somebody who was actively engaged in the insurrection in that moment. Can you think of an innocent explanation why the White House switchboard would just happen to connect with one of the insurrectionists? Well, Joy, it's a good question. I think it is worth noting that the committee, both members specifically like Congressman Raskin, but also broadly, were putting out these statements urging caution. So I do take that with a uh, with a certain amount of value in terms of how we're evaluating this information. It seems to me that you know what we don't want to do is get too focused on any one element that might be rebutted or may or may not be relevant, and instead, not we shouldn't lose focus of the much broader issue here, and that is that we are moving to the point, certainly that we're seeing January six committee doing it, but also the FBI and DOJ and the people they're putting into the grand jury, the people they're charging, communications up to and at the level that are involving people at the White House. We're seeing text after text with Mark Meadows reporting that he not only was in contact with a lot of these January 6th members, but also his active involvement in the efforts to overturn state uh, election results. And so we're seeing a variety of communications that are going now into the White House, right up to and next to Trump. And so when the committee says, hey, let's be careful and cautious about any one particular call, I think that's worth noting because I do think the risk is if we focus too much on one particular call, we're going to lose sight of the much bigger, much more concerning picture that I anticipate we're going to hear a lot about this coming Wednesday. It's a, okay. And I think it's fair. That, that is absolutely fair. But the, the thing is, and I'm going to go to you on this, Charles, and then I'm going to come back to you in a second, Peter, because what's emerging is that you have Mark Meadows in touch with multiple people, which indicates that He's not playing the role as Trump's chief of staff of trying to stop this, right? And you got a little bit of this from the previous hearings, that the role he's playing seems to be as somebody who's trying to help make the coup happen. This is um, also some CNN reporting. Phil Waldron, and this guy, Phil Waldron, for those of you who don't remember him, he was presented in one of the hearings. He's a former army colonel. He has this background in information warfare. He's a friend of Michael Flynn, an ally of Michael Flynn. He assembled this 38-slide PowerPoint presentation outlining a plan to overturn the election, sent that, pow that, par that PowerPoint to Mark Meadows and to Republican lawmakers and helped draft this executive order directing the Pentagon and the Department of Homeland Security to seize voting machines, work with Rudy Giuliani to gain access to voting systems in states Trump lost. So this guy was very much involved in the coup uh, plot. He's also texting Meadows. Phil Waldron texts Meadows on December 23rd. But well before the insurrection, that an Arizona judge had dismissed a lawsuit filed by friendly GOP lawmakers. Waldron characterized Arizona as our lead domino we were counting on to start the cascade, referring to similar states such as Georgia. And Meadows responds, pathetic. 
this makes me think that this guy is somebody they probably need to hear from live. But what do you make of all of the connections that appear to lead right back to Mark Meadows? Well, Joy, I've said for a long time that Mark Meadows' testimony and what he knows is absolutely critical if there ever is going to be a concrete link drawn between the actions of many of the rioters on January 6th that were a coordinated effort to overthrow America's democracy and Donald Trump. He is the linchpin that is necessary in order to tie that together. We already know everything we need to about the narrative. We know that these people were unquestionably anti-democratic. They were unquestionably anti-fair election. What we don't know, however, is how much of a connection Donald Trump had to the actual coordination of what we saw happen. And that's why the criminal referrals and the notion of a criminal referral to the DOJ is absolutely paramount. If you get a unanimous criminal referral from this select committee to the DOJ, it puts it squarely on Merrick Garland to actually make a decision as opposed to not getting that referral or what that referral actually looks like, its contours and who's named in the referral. So Mark Meadows is absolutely a very key figure in putting all of this together and tying it up in a way that the DOJ and Merrick Garland can actually do something with, with regard to putting together an indictment and a potential prosecution. And, and Tilmo, I want to bring you in, the, in into this conversation, too, because here's the, the, the challenge is there's a small group of players whose names keep popping up. It's kind of like the Mueller report, right? You keep hearing the same names. One of those names is obviously Roger Stone. He's somebody who we know had relationships with members of the Proud Boys. He knows the Oath Keepers. He knows these people. He's using some of them as his bodyguards. Now, I want to play a piece of tape. This is from, just to confirm for my producers, I think this is November of 2020. November of 2020. This is Roger Stone talking about what he thinks should be done. Now, we know at this point, Trump has lost. He knows he's lost, but he doesn't want to leave office. And this is, oh, this is actually, I'm sorry. This is before the election happened. This is before the election happened. Sorry, thanks that my producers corrected me in my ear. Here is Roger Stone. Go. Excellent. <laughs> the, <laughs> the violence. <laughs> the voting. Let's get right Let's get to right the to violence. Let's get right to it. Shoot to kill. See him. See an Antifa. Shoot to kill. Yeah. Him. Done with this. All right, Tim, <laughs> you're up. This is before the election even happens. Roger Stone says, "F the voting. Let's get right to the violence." Your thoughts? Look, Roger Stone has been a pernicious and uh, uh, criminal element of Donald Trump's uh, team going all the way back to 2015. I, you know, Peter can uh, talk about this going back to the Mueller report, but uh, Doctor or Roger Stone was has obviously been kind of an outside heavy if you will, for Donald Trump, dating back to even before he ran for president this last time. Uh, it's clearly the case this time. You know, I, I think one of the things that, that we could hear more about from January 6th committee or Riggleman, et cetera, is, you know, the extent to the conversations he was having with active White House people. We know he was coordinating with the Proud Boys. Uh, you know, we know he is, you know, in the extended circle of Donald Trump and that he was meeting with Bannon and some of these other characters uh, at the Willard. Uh, on the day of January 6th. And, and so I, to, to the extent that you can directly connect him, obviously that makes an impact, but there's a lot of, a lot that we already know just about about his criminal impact in, in, in Trump's orbit. And, and Peter, 
Stone pops up as an anti-small-D Democratic figure in 2016 and in 2020. This is somebody who doesn't seem to believe in democracy, doesn't seem to believe in elections. He simply believes in having his preferred person in power, regardless of elections, regardless of what outside help he has to get, even if it's Russian, it doesn't matter. What do you make of that tape, that before we even cast a vote, um, he was already saying, F the elections, let's get right to the violence? Well, it clearly shows, Joy, that there was some anticipation that, one, there would be violence, and that, two, it was part of potentially a plan that people were envisioning as a way to protest or upset or somehow cause change within the electoral results. You know, I think it's really interesting that based on what he's saying in that tape, he's clearly also looking at a phone, presumably at messages that are being sent back and forth. I'm very curious what the committee and certainly what the FBI and DOJ are able to recover, because I have no expectation that Roger Stone is ever voluntarily going to talk. Much like I don't have much of an expectation that Mark Meadows would. But the goal of what DOJ is doing, and you pointed out in your run-up that the Stuart Rhodes' trial starts this week for seditious conspiracy, the goal is to build cases where you have some sort of criminal case against people like Roger Stone, against people like Mark Meadows, and present to them a choice. Look, you can cooperate work down the charges, you know, maybe get no jail time. Or if you don't cooperate, you're going to go to jail. And that's the way when you get to this level, that's what you're going to need to do to get people to flip, to talk about specifically what I think we're all interested in. What did Trump know? What was Trump doing? What was Trump saying? And the only way you're going to get that is from people like Roger Stone, people like Mark Meadows. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me. I completely agree with Tim. I mean, Stone has a history of not only advocating for violence, just racist, misogynistic, horrible, hateful statements and behavior. This is absolutely what we've seen in the past. And it doesn't surprise me at all to hear these sort of statements coming from him. Can we just play this tape again? Just, so just to set it up again, this is in November of 2020. This is before the election took place. Um, let's play it again. Excellent. <laughs> the, vi- <laughs> the violence. <laughs> the voting. Let's get right let's get to right the to violence. Let's get right to it. <laughs> Shoot to kill. See him. See an Antifa. Shoot to kill. Come. Yeah. Done with this. So Charles, this is CNN exclusive footage. We should make sure we, we credit them for that. But this is going to allegedly be played by the committee. We're going to see this again tomorrow. It says a storm foretold at the top, which sounds like QAnon talk. What, do, what would you make of it, just from a prosecutorial standpoint, if you're looking at Roger Stone as part of a conspiracy? Well, clearly, Joey, on one end, if you're thinking about the connection that Stone has to the rioters or anyone else, you want to know who he was in touch with because it helps frame the narrative around intent and makes very clear the intent that Roger Stone had and likely communicated to anyone who was on the ground, so to speak, and participating in the January 6th riots. If you look the other direction, meaning where they were getting the directive from, that's where you have the opportunity to link it to someone higher to understand exactly where was this ideology developed, who shared it, and how was it communicated, and who else shared that sort of point of view that he was in touch with. And so I think it's important that people look at it from both sides. Number one, who was giving Stone instructions that was going to guide him in this way to frame it so that he was saying what he was saying? And then number two, who was he actually communicating that to? And what did they do? So when you look at it from both sides, it really has a lot of usefulness as a prosecutor if you're thinking about how to put together a case or a narrative a narrative around a clear 
intent that Stone is communicating during this taping, where it came from, and ultimately what happened with it, and how you can make him responsible, as well as whoever actually originated responsible for what happened on January 6th. Uh, last word to you on this, Tim, because here's the problem. All the characters we're talking about are mainstream parts of the Republican Party right now, and are still mainstream parts of the Republican Party. They're still sort of the thinkers, if you want to call it that, behind Republican politics. What is the party to do if there's no one standing against this? I don't see a single voice in the party that is opposing this, which is, I presume, their strategy going forward, too. I know that Liz Cheney is the voice, and she's Other out of the Liz party. Cheney. I mean, she yeah. Was, yeah, you're right. I mean, she was literally in an interview. I was with her in Austin this past weekend, does this interview where it sounds as, as if she'll be supporting the Democrat for governor <laughs> in some of these uh, governor states with their insurrection. So that's where we're at right now because she's not welcome uh, despite her uh, her position. So, uh, look, I, I think the, it shows you the hubris. I just have to laugh at the hubris, the fact that there's this Danish documentary crew following them with these people. I mean, this is how the, the, the you know, with the Alex Holder documentary, uh, they truly feel like they're above the law. Mark Meadows is sending these texts December 23rd. The Electoral Co- College has already met. Uh, you know, right. all this stuff is already done. And, and so all of the just the hubris of all of these guys to feel like they're above the law, they can continue to push this. And, and, and I think that you're exactly right. It seems so obvious that there should be spe- people speaking out. It's why the Liz Cheney thing is so courageous, but also frustrating. So it's like, why doesn't everybody sound like her? It's so obvious that this is wrong. And yet yeah. and the, the state of affairs, she's being pushed into the arms of the other party. Well, there's one more, Adam Kinzinger. Just Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. That's it. You got a party of two. And by the way, the people who were involved in the insurrection taped it and put it on their social media. That's how confident they were that they could get away with it. Uh, incriminated themselves. And now they're shocked they're getting in trouble. Uh, Charles Coleman, Peter Strzok, Tim Miller. Thank you both. Thank you all three very much. Uh, up next on The Readout, Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes. His, really name is, his name is really Elmer. Elmer Student Rhodes. Stuart Rhodes goes on trial tomorrow. He faces 20 years in the slammer for his role in the attempt to violently overthrow the democratically elected government on January 6th. A former member who quit the Oath Keepers joins me next. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Tomorrow, jury selection will begin in the seditious conspiracy trial of five members of the Oath Keepers, including the extremist group's leader, Elmer Stewart Rhodes. Prosecutors will attempt to paint a picture of the extreme lengths that Rhodes and his followers were willing to go to keep Donald Trump in the White House, both on and before January 6th. According to his indictment, Rhodes' call to arms began just days after the 2020 election. On November 5th, Rhodes privately messaged a group of Oath Keepers, writing, 
we aren't getting through this without a civil war. Five days later, he went on Alex Jones's InfoWars show to announce that he had armed men stationed outside Washington prepared to go in to prevent Trump from being removed from office. In the first couple of days of 2021, court documents say Rhodes spent more than $15,000 on guns, including an AR platform, Rightful, magazines, and other equipment. And on the day of the insurrection, you can see them there, entering the Capitol in full military gear. Since Rhodes formed the Oath Keepers in 2009, it has grown to be one of the largest anti-government groups in U.S. history, as the group's former spokesperson told the January 6th committee back in July. I spent a few years with the Oath Keepers, and I can tell you that they may not like to call themselves a militia, but they are. They're a violent militia, and they are largely Stuart Rhodes. Joining me now is the man that you just saw, Jason Von Tatenhove, and he is the former spokesperson for the Oath Keepers and the author of the forthcoming book, The Perils of Extremism, How I Left the Oath Keepers and Why We Should Be Concerned About a Future Civil War, which is out in February. It's good to talk to you again, Jason. Let's get right to this. Uh, I want to just read you a little bit of what prosecutors um, are going to do in this trial that starts tomorrow um, of Elmer, who calls himself Stuart Rhodes. Prosecutors plan to call as many as 40 witnesses over a projected five-week trial, draw from 800 statements by those charged, and summarize tens of thousands of messages, hundreds of hours of video footage, and hundreds of phone calls, location, and financial records. Uh, According to the original proceedings, three Oath Keepers members have pleaded guilty to the seditious conspiracy charge and are among more than a dozen potential informants in the case. What do you expect, what would you anticipate the defense might be? Because it seems pretty clear what the plan was. You know, I, I think it's very much going to be um, these were just words. We were just acting tough. You know, we really didn't mean it. Um, and and a certain amount of some of the tactics we saw with the the prosecutions against the Bundys and, and some of these other things are going on. And, and watch what Trump's been doing and what he's going to be doing legally, because I think we're going to see some parroting there as well. Do you knowing these people, knowing Elmer Rhodes, how serious do you think they were about overthrowing the government? I think they were absolutely serious. I think if things had gone just a little bit differently, we would be living in a different reality right now. Um, you know, if you look at his words and his messaging that he was putting out just the, the night before at the speeches with what was has been released with the, the prosecution, uh, the messaging that was happening specifically like on signal and behind the scenes. I think that's really where we see where his state of mind was. And, you know, if if things had just gone, if, if Trump had walked down Mm. to the Capitol building, I think Stewart's actions would have been completely different. And do, and do you get the sense that what he was doing, and, and that keeping in mind for our audience that you were not involved at, at the time, but just from knowing this person, what's the likelihood in your view that he would have done this without some sort of connection to someone like a Mark Meadows, to the White House, that he was doing this freelance completely without any knowledge of the Trump team? Oh, no, I, I, I think they had lines of communication open with the, uh, the the Trump team going back to the uh, campaign. I think that there were they were actively trying to open those lines, both from the uh, militia side and from the White House side, from the campaign side. I think that that they uh, probably connected up a while back. So I think I'm gonna, without I'm that going. type of Go without on. that type of connection, um, you know, he may have showed up as like a protest, but nothing like he was there because it seemed like he was getting messaging, like he was taking orders from Trump. 
Let me play, I don't know if we still have it. This is, uh, is down, asking my, my director, downtown Sterling Brown. Do we still have this video from the CNN video? Do we have that? Can we play it again? We don't have, okay, well, well we won't play it for now. We know that there is video now that is, that is going to be played by the January 6th committee, and it shows Roger Stone, before the election even happened, saying, F the voting, let's get to the violence. That was the attitude before the election even happened. In your view, was that the same attitude that Stuart Rhodes had? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he he was he was talking about how we don't get out of this without a civil war. I mean, this is the messaging he's been, um, you know, putting out there time and time again since, you know, the early days. It's just it's gotten more and more extreme and, and more and more violent. Um, you know, before he was talking about what would be termed a cold civil war. But really, I mean, he's talking about a hot civil war now. And that's part of the messaging. That messaging has ratcheted up over time. And uh, we saw that with the culmination of January 6th. And would he have needed to believe that the election was really actually stolen? Or did he just not believe that the people who voted for Joe Biden were legitimate and should have their way? I don't think he cared either way. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that mostly he just doesn't like the the left side of things and wanted to see Trump, who gave him a road to authority and authenticity as a clandestine militia leader. He wanted to see him stay in power. Let me play this video. I think we do have it now. Here is Roger Stone before the election. Excellent. <laughs> The violence. Fuck the violence. Let's get right to the violence. Let's get right to it. Shoot to kill. See an Antifa? Shoot to kill. Fuck Done with this. The Roger Stone saying, F the voting, let's get right to the violence. What was the relationship, as you know it, between Roger Stone and Stuart Rhodes? Um, well, we know that there was some sort of communication going on because uh, Oath Keepers were providing security uh, the day before. Um, and it is my understanding that, you know, way back during the campaign, Roger Stone, from from my thought process, is probably the one who was reaching out to these militia leaders um, and, and trying to open lines of communication. So he probably was one of the major players when it comes to some of these extremist groups and, and you know, back backwater communication to the uh, to the White House. Jason uh, Van Tatenhove, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here again. Um, thank you. Really appreciate you tonight. Uh, still ahead. Nationalistic fascism is on the rise, not just here, not just here in America, but around the world as well. More on that and how the forces of freedom are fighting back next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. It's Monday night.
It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. One hundred years ago, Benito Mussolini came to power in Italy. He led a march on Rome, flanked by the fascist armed squads known as black shirts, in a deliberate show of force designed to intimidate parliament, seizing total control over the Italian government. That march occurred in October 1922, meaning we are just weeks away from the 100th anniversary of this infamous coup d'etat. And yet, this week, neo-fascism won big in Italy. With Georgia Maloney poised to form Italy's most right-wing government since the Second World War. Maloney is the leader of the hard-right Brothers of Italy, a party with roots in the post-war neo-fascist Italian social movement. The party's flag features a tricolor flame popularized by Mussolini. The election poses a danger not just to Italy, but to the rest of the world as well. At a time when here in America, we debate often and loudly about the creeping rise and national security threat of fascism and the dangers posed by cult-like leaders who rise to power spewing racist and xenophobic beliefs. Those same type of leaders are solidifying power in other parts of the world, where the march toward fascism is boldly, defiantly taking hold. Take Russia, whose bloody and terrible war is justified by Vladimir Putin's obsession with power and with restoring a discarded old order, an obsession that's now forcing his own people into military service to try to take over Ukraine. Failure to appear for military service will be punishable by up to 10 years in prison. And so Russian men are now hiding, fleeing the country, and according to the New York Times, breaking their own arms to avoid being called up. The Kremlin's conscription drive is facing protests, with dozens of Russians detained at anti-mobilization protests in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Protesters can be heard chanting no to war as they are arrested. All of this as four Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine began forced participation in sham referenda on joining Russia. People are being forced to vote at military gunpoint to validate Moscow's annexation of the territory it occupies. Both the mobilization and the swift, violent nature of the referenda may reveal a deteriorating position for Russia, and growing anti-war protests can only signal trouble for Putin's war. Meanwhile, in another part of the world, a powerful wave of dissent, led by young women, is taking a stand for freedom and modernity. Stay with us. This is Iran's George Floyd moment, and I hope the people continue to speak out against this outrage. British Iranian actor Omid Jalili, uh, who we should note is not in Iran, makes the case that international attention is crucial for movements to succeed, likening the monumental impact of George Floyd's death to another death in police custody. This time in Iran, where 22-year-old Masa Amini, a Kurdish woman, died in the custody of Iran's morality police. She had been detained for violating Iran's law requiring women to wear headscarves, fully hiding their hair. For nearly two weeks, the streets of Iran have erupted in protest over Amini's death, morphing into anti-government rallies and wider calls for freedom and women's rights. 
Women are leading the charge, cutting their hair and burning headscarves, walking the streets without wearing their hijab in very public acts of defiance. In response, authorities have cut off Internet access, WhatsApp and Instagram, while accusing Western leaders of trying to violate Iran's sovereignty. Joining me now is Kareem Sajapur. He is senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I'm so excited to talk with you, um, Kareem. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into this, because this has been extraordinary to watch. Friends of mine who, have, who are from Iran have still have family there have been saying to me, this is different. This is not like the Green Revolution was felt monumental how, in your view, is this different? Uh, certainly, Joy, as you as you put it, what's different about this is that it's young women who have been leading these protests. And there's been a beautiful slogan that you've heard from the protesters in Persian. They say, Zan Zendegi Azadi. It means uh, women, uh, uh, Zendegi is life, women, life, and freedom. So uh, this has been unique. And... It's uh, men standing alongside their women as well. And so, um, you know, very, virtually every facet of society has been outraged by the idea that a young 22-year-old girl with her life ahead of her uh, could be killed simply for showing a little bit too much hair. Yeah, and I'm just going to read. This is from um, Samira Mohedin, and she's a journalist. I was born in Tehran. She writes, the Green Movement in 2009 had spokespeople and was very organized. As a result, that made it very easy to put down. The current iteration is proving difficult for the government of Iran to put down because they don't know who to go after. And, and the other piece, and I've heard you say this before, um, and I, I would love for you to just talk about it with our audience. This is also a reaction against the gerontocracy in Iran. It's a right-wing religious movement that isn't that old. I mean, this is since I was in junior high school. I think, you know, only in 1983, I believe, was this law passed after the 1979 revolution that forced women to completely cover, right? This isn't new. Iran was a normal, modern country. Yeah, in fact, right after the uh, religious zealots took power, Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979, one of the first things which all these um, Islamist groups do, and we saw this most recently in Afghanistan with the Taliban, yep. is to go after women's freedoms, you know, segregate uh, men and women in schools, uh, limit their professional opportunities, and they're obsessed with uh, the headscarf and the veil. And the parallel I sometimes make are, you know, antiquated judges we sometimes saw in the West that would blame sexual assault victims by saying that they were wearing improper clothing. When you listen to the justification from Iran's religious leaders about why women should wear headscarves, it's partly because they think they, they, they claim they will incite men if they if their hair is is uncovered. And so this, you know, do you think that this is sustainable in the sense that it might shake that gerontological leadership? Because, you know, these people who led that revolution are now in their 80s. These are old men. And these are young people in a country that is predominantly young. So this is a regime which is not sustainable, Joy. It, um, and it's proven incapable of reform. It's now in its 43rd year, and it's still killing women for not covering their hair in, in year 43. And we know from some of the great uh, philosophers, political philosophers like Tocqueville, um, Machiavelli, that the most dangerous moment for any bad government is when it tries to reform. So Iran's supreme leader, he's 83 years old. He's totally committed to the status quo and they're not amenable to reform. And so what that means is essentially it's an all or nothing proposition. Either they crush people and they stay in power or the system falls. And unfortunately, we've seen this many times before that they are able to successfully 
uh, crush uh, popular will. And it's too early to assess this time. Um, the bravery of young people is certainly enormous. Um, but, you know, we have to say the odds are against them. And do you think it's important, you know, we're doing this story because we're, we're fascinated by it. And, and I think these women are so brave and I have great respect for them. We, we played an actor in the very top who's British uh, and Iranian. He said that the, the, the attention helps. Do you think that's true? Because they're cutting off Telegram and cutting off WhatsApp and trying to cut these young people off from the outside world. Do you think that the outside attention actually helps sustain the movement? It does. The outside attention is is really critical in shining a light on people. People want to feel that the world is with them. Um, you know, over over the weekend, uh, Elon Musk is 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 voice support for uh, getting his uh, Starlink internet kits into Iran to inhibit the Iranian regime's ability to simply shut off the internet so they can kill in the dark. So uh, absolutely, I think outside outside solidarity condemnation. Is critical. And Joy, I would argue this is one of those few moments in in international geopolitics where it's a pretty black and white moment. It's like yeah. South Af apartheid South Africa. Yeah. Um, you know, no one, uh, even Iran's allies in Moscow, Pyongyang, uh, and Beijing, no one is going to to defend the persecution of women for showing too much hair. Absolutely. I mean, and women around the world do want individual liberty and so, and autonomy. And that is everywhere, not just in Iran. Um, Kareem Sajapur, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here. And up next, encouraging signs that legislators may finally be ready to actually do something about the ongoing water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi. More on that in the latest on the Brett Favre fraud scandal after this. Mississippi is the poorest state in the country, but that didn't stop Brett Favre from allegedly treating it and the state's welfare fund like a bank for his pet projects. The Associated Press reports that two years after he secured millions of dollars from that fund for his daughter's college volleyball team, he went back, back to the Republican governor, Phil Bryant, to ask for more money for another facility for the University of Southern Mississippi's football team. But the request went nowhere. Neither Favre nor Brian has been charged with any crime, and Favre has claimed that his fundraising efforts were honorable. Now, it is disgusting, but not entirely surprising that the state's Republican governors and their state legislatures have consistently failed Mississippi's most vulnerable, including the people who live in the state capital, Jackson, long neglected by the state, with low-income citizens living in squalid conditions with no access to clean water. Congressman Benny Thompson, who represents the city, has accused state leaders of intentionally withholding resources. Maybe Brett Favre could send a text to get some action. According to Politico, House appropriators are considering sending the city $200 million to finally address the city's crumbling, dysfunctional water system. In the meantime, a group of Jackson residents are seeking class action status in order to file suit against current and former city officials, accusing them of ignoring the water system for years. Joining me now from Jackson, Mississippi, is Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, who just led a Moral Monday march in the state capitol. And Brooke Floyd, a Jackson resident and activist who is demanding that the state government do more. Thank you both for being here. And I want to start with you, Brooke. My notes here say that you you and your twins um, live in a suburb of Jackson, that you don't drink the tap water because your doctors warned you about the lead levels. This sounds like an ongoing, long systemic problem. What do you make of this idea of suing the city? Is the city to blame or is it the state? Um, I actually live in Jackson. I'm a resident of Jackson. And um, 
No, this is a problem that has been going on for decades. And I believe that the citizens have every right to sue the state of Mississippi for neglect and not repairing our infrastructure years ago. And, and is Jackson, has the, the leadership in Jackson gone to the state? Because I understand they've gone back and forth to the state and we're seeing Brett Favre get millions and millions of dollars and Jackson seemingly get nothing. Our mayors, um, as far back as I can remember, have asked state leaders for assistance um, in repairing our aging infrastructure. They have not received it not received a large enough amount to offer uh, the repairs that we needed. And so here we are, um, our system failed. Uh, and we are still going to experience this in the winter months if it is not completely repaired. All they have done is done some patchwork, okay? The state has not fixed it yet. So that is why we are here today. That's why we are demanding that our water systems be fixed, that our pipes be fixed, that our children are no longer exposed to lead and copper and bad things in their water because we deserve clean water. Bishop Barber, I remember when you launched Moral Mondays in North Carolina, and this was the denial of health care to the residents there. You were relaunching that in Jackson, Mississippi, in Mississippi, your thoughts on this decision-making about where to spend money on sports facilities that Brett Favre and his daughter benefit from, not on Jackson? Well, you know, it's been hard for me not to say what Nina Simone said about Mississippi, but the bottom line is you see all of this thievery that's allegedly happened between the government and Favre, and, 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 and yet there's people here, and not only are they stealing money, allegedly, they're stealing poor folks' money, the money that comes from poor people. We look at what's going on with this family. We look at the fact that the mayor has had a plan. Jackson has had a plan. They've lied on this city. We look at the fact that the city voted to tax itself to fix it, and then the state government and the governor blocked them from using their own money to fix the problem. What you have here is a group of folk who are intent. They want privatization. They want to own this city. They want to own the airport. They, seemingly, they want to steal the money. They don't want poor people to have anything. But what's happening is poor and low wealth people of every race, creed and color are standing up because this water is hurting black people and women and men and the disabled and Latinos and white people. And this moral Monday is the first. When we started in North Carolina, it was 17 people. They have 10 times, 20 times more people than that here. And this is just the first. What we're not going to do, they silent. What they're not going to do is allow them to do patchwork and then get it out of the media and, and continue to do the same old, same old. People are tired of having to wash their babies in poison water. Don't know what's in it. They're tired of it. And it happens year after year because the state and the governor has been more interested in blocking fixing what needs to be fixed than helping to fix what needs to be fixed. But the state, the federal government, the Corps of Engineers, all of them could get in here and do this. My sister, Sister Mallory, just said, if this was anywhere else, if this was in an affluent community, this would not be happening. This would not be happening. It's happening here because of that. But people are standing up and deciding that they're not going to be silent or quiet anymore on these matters. And, and, and they've been like organizing for years about this. This this is not just something just starting. These people have been organizing for years. Sure. Yes. What was the question? It, no, indeed. I was just going to ask Ms. Flood if you could just describe for us what it is like to live in a city, because we saw this with Flint. A city, you know, without water, a city where you don't have access to water that comes out of your tap. Um, it's frustrating. It's overwhelming as a parent. Um, when, when the water is gone, schools are closed. 
you know, your kids are at home. They're learning at home. I know this whole country dealt with that during the pandemic, but this has happened before the pandemic. Our children were at home for long stretches of time because the water lines broke. Our water system was broken. It is broken. And so this is, you know, boiling water after you've gotten home from work, having just to wash the dishes, getting bottled water to brush teeth, to wash babies' faces because you don't want them to accidentally ingest the water. Sure. This is a, a time-consuming, a frustrating, money, costing, you name it, it. It runs the list of things that are inconvenient as well as unfair. I, I mean, the list goes on. We, it, it's immoral. It, it's sinful. It's not okay. And it's not right. And Joy, one thing before you go, what 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 is also the issue? The same people here, that same governor that said they are blocking living wages. Fifty percent of Mississippians make less than living wage. They block health care in this state. So during a pandemic, people die because they didn't have they didn't have health care. And that and they're also poisoning the water. That's yeah. why people are coming together because yeah. they're tired of it and it must change. Indeed. Uh, Bishop William Barber, Brooke Flood, thank you both very much. Much appreciated. That is tonight's readout. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.